Harry, thanks for being on the phone with us today. Uh, Harry, I want to talk to you about just the rush to gold that's happening right now. Um, explain for us, first of all, just what is the thinking that is occurring with people that gold is just going to be the only way out of this mess? What, what, frame that for me, if you would, in terms of what what is even the concern there that makes gold so popular? Well, you know, it's pretty simple, Bruce. People are assuming they're watching this debt crisis unfold, and every time the economy weakens, which is just done here recently, you get the same thing. Europe steps up or the Fed steps up, you know, ECB, whatever, and says, well, we're going to print more money, and we're going to keep the system from melting down, keep the banks from melting down, you know, keep uh, money in the economy so consumers keep spending, keep bond rates down so the government keep bar- can keep borrowing more money and pay low interest rates. You know, this whole quantitative easing and quantitative easing, the theory is, obviously, you're creating additional money out of nowhere. You're pumping it into the banking system and then into the economy, and that creates more money, which debases the value of your currency on one side. Therefore, the dollar should drop in value under that theory. And on the other side, you're, you're likely to create inflation. And even possibly we keep going more and more and more hyperinflation at some point. And so people just naturally think gold is the solution. It, it's a commodity and it's a monetary metal at the same time. It's a crisis metal. So if we have a crisis and the dollar collapses, then gold will keep going up in value. Well, so so that, that's the logic. It's very simple. And, and this is a logic that's been held for hundreds of years. All right. So, well, we definitely can confirm that the governments are printing money like mad all over the world. Uh, every time we're in trouble here, the Fed puts another injection of, of money into the system. Uh, you've got people that basically politically uh, purport that that's all we should be doing is printing five times more money. So uh, those factors are in place. Tell me what factors are in place that would say that that's not going to play out or that some other scenario is going to play out. Okay, the biggest thing we argue on the other side, first of all, this is not the 1970s. Gold, that was the great, the late 60s and the late 70s was the greatest period for gold in our lifetimes and commodities in general, but gold in particular, because it was an inflationary era. We call it the summer season in our longer term cycles. So when money creation and or other factors create steady inflation yes gold i mean gold went i don't know from forty dollars an ounce to 880 or something you know, over a decade i mean that's that was a huge run in bubble and gold really was one of the best investments for the recessionary and difficult and volatile period of the 70s our problem is we say this season is the opposite this is like the 1930s not the 1970s whenever you see massive debt bubbles, which also fuel when there's a lot of debt issued in the economy, in a good economy with low interest rates like we saw in the 90s and 2000s and we saw back in the early 1900s and roaring 20s, and in the 1980s in Japan, when you get that sort of environment, debt accelerates, that drives up asset values, things like real estate, you know, commodities, stocks and stuff. You get major bubbles and then those bubbles burst. Because bubbles just burst because they get too extreme. When they burst, all the debt and all the speculation behind those bubbles unravels, and you actually end up, and this has happened every single time in history. There are no exceptions. You see major debt bubbles, major asset bubbles, and then they deleverage and crash like the 1930s or the 1870s and 80s or the 1930s, 1830s and 40s before that. Every major one in, in modern history 
is followed by deflation in prices because all those debts are written down. Banks fail, like in the 1930s, and that's destroying money. So you're creating money by creating debt. That's how we create money. The Federal Reserve doesn't create money. The banking system does with the Federal Reserve's uh, permission, and they can make it harder or easier, but it's actually the financial institutions, banks, uh, and, and, and everybody. You're talking the private sector. You're saying that the money washes out of the private sector. Yes. It, it, the bubble is created. In other words, everybody's looking at government debt that went from $5 trillion to $10 trillion in eight years under George W. Bush, and now is at $16 trillion because we're funding all these deficits in the downturn. Private debt went from $21 trillion to $42 trillion. So it was four times as big at the top of the bubble in 2008. And, and it, what, what do you expect the liability of that pro, uh, p- private sector debt is to still wash out or burst or fall apart? Uh, uh, the $20 trillion we increased, how much do you think is, is got to wash? All $20 trillion. Really? It happens in bubbles, whether it's stocks or commodities or debt bubbles always go exponential for five day years and then they basically the extremes of the bubble are wiped out so so basically incomes and and and, and the economy you know adjusted for inflation didn't really improve that much in the in the last decade but but debt more than doubled government and private so we got to basically get debt back down to where it should be which is the pre-bubble level so so we went from 20 to 42 we're probably going to go back to about 20 trillion dollars in debt so but Harry, uh, if that much debt gets destroyed, you've you've destroyed twenty trillion dollars, which means there's less money chasing goods and services, mm-hmm. which means deflation and prices. So see, that's the problem. Gold, when when they see money printing, the natural assumption, and it is a natural assumption, is we're going to get inflation out of this. Now, number one um, example we use, Japan. Basically, in the, in the last two decades, in the 1990s and 2000s, they had their big bubble burst, their real estate bubble burst, their baby boom slow in spending, you know, a decade, decade and a half ahead of us in Europe because they didn't have a baby boom after World War II. Japan has done quantitative easing, money printing. When you compare their size of their economy, which is about a third of ours, the equivalent of $5 trillion in the U.S. today, where we're up to two, a little over $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. So they, they eased over a long period of time, much more than we did, 32% of their GDP, in fact, massive amounts, unprecedented. Guess how much inflation they had over the last two decades? Just take a guess. Uh, in Japan, um, by a lot of money printing going on over there, uh, I'm not even going to take a stab at it, you tell me. Zero. They've had a little, they have that deflation on and off, and they've had a little bit of inflation, but overall in the last two decades, their, their, their consumer price index has been flat. Uh, is, is a board. And so is their economy. So The biggest money printing in history did not create inflation. Why? Because debt was deleveraging. People were aging. The aging of a population where people basically kind of save more, spend less, don't, don't make investments in the future in assets, you know, housing and cars and stuff. That's deflationary. Young people are inflationary. Um, Building debt is inflationary, and deleveraging debt is deflationary. So Japan, going through a cycle similar to us, and doing the same thing we in Europe are doing, and I'm sure we're going to see more money printing, still didn't create one drop of inflation. With more money printing than we ever did in the Great Depression or any other time in history, so this assumption by golden investors that money printing must create inflation does not take into account all the money that's being destroyed. What we tell people... The, the truth is here, 
we already saw deflation in late 2008, early 2009. The governments around the world are printing money very purposefully, very reactively, exactly to offset deflation. They know deflation is the trend. And, mm-hmm. and, and so gold rallies when in the anticipation of a financial crisis because you think, oh, the dollar's going to crash and we're going to get inflation out of this down the road. Um, when the in, financial crisis actually hits, as it did in late 2008. The financial crisis didn't really hit till late 2008, early 2009. Gold went down 32%. Silver went down 50%. Oil crashed from 80-some percent. Commodities were down. Real estate was down. Stocks were down here and around the world, even in countries that didn't have recessions. It was a deflationary, deleveraging period. So gold went up at first. Seeing the, the growing subprime crisis, then when the crisis actually hit, it actually went down. So, so that's another hint. You look at what actually happened in the last financial crisis. The U.S. dollar, which is supposed to collapse with all this money printing and bank crisis, went up 27%. Gold went down 32%. So, Harry, is what you're saying is the Fed should just go ahead and keep printing because uh, it's not going to cause inflation? It'll keep the banks from breaking? I mean, is is this a good thing to just keep printing money? No, it's not a good thing. It, it, it only kicks the crisis down the road and makes it worse because they're adding debt to debt. I mean, that's the other simple logic which a 10-year-old can understand. If you've got a debt crisis and we've got the big we, – we can't even compare this, Bruce, to past history. When I look at the debt bubbles that peaked in you know, 1835 and 1873 and then 1929, it doesn't, the, the debt ratios, private and government, and, and all that sort of stuff, and the asset bubbles, I mean, this time we had a bubble in commodities, stocks, and real estate, everything. In the 1920s, it was mostly stocks. In the 1870s, it was mostly stocks. 1830s, it was stocks and real estate and commodities, but more like this. But this is rare. So this is bigger than anything we've seen. So so when you see a debt bubble like this, it needs to deleverage. We can't have home prices stay at, at ten times, you know, eight to ten times income in the worst places like California. You can't have stocks stay up at high levels. You can't have commodities stay up at high levels, you know, home affordability, all this stuff. You can't carry $42 trillion in private debt on top of our government debt, which we know is going to go up. My estimate is the government debt is going to go up to $25 trillion by the end of this decade unless we do something radically different because the economy is going to continue to be weak because of falling demographic trends, and, and the government's going to keep running deficits under the, under, under the excuse that, well, we can't afford not to run deficits when the economy's weak. No. We've already seen two small countries. Iceland and Estonia basically go through austerity and come out the other side stronger because they let a lot of their private debt deleverage. We tell people $42 trillion in private debt. This is like trying to run with a 250-pound weight on your back. Now, add to that, we've already added $6 more trillion in government debt and more. We're just going to keep weighing ourselves down where, where we end up like Japan after two decades of, debt, of, of minor debt deleveraging because they did all this quantitative easing to avoid it. They, still, they have higher debt total, mostly government, than they had coming in. So here's the reason. And, and that's going to break. That's got to break somewhere. There's going to be a day of reckoning for Japan. Well, the world goes down here in a crisis. Japan's going to feel that in their economy exports. And, yes, Japan never really had their debt crisis. Here's the reason I say 
quantitative easing is the wrong policy because its intention is to prevent the banking system from deleveraging. They don't want the banks to go under like they did in the 1930s. They don't want debt to be written down. Consumers and businesses need this excessive debt. All these consumers underwater mortgages need their, their mortgage to be written down to, you know, 90% of the value of the house or something, which is in line, something they can pay long-term again, and we can move forward. I mean, we can't carry this much debt, especially in a time when, when baby boomers are largely aging, and they're going to be earning less, saving more, spending less. Anyway, so the economy on its own would slow down without this massive debt crisis. So by doing this, they're basically easing the pain. It, we, we always compare it to a drug addict. I mean, if, if you're addicted to any heavy drug, let, let's say crack, and, and, and you, you, know, you, you know you're addicted and you're, it's taking more and more of the drug and you get more and more unhealthy, you basically got two choices. You either keep taking more of the drug till you die or pass out, or you go through detox, and you go through a very difficult, let's call it, period of austerity, where you, de- where, where you let the drugs get flushed out of your system so you can start over again and not have the drugs in there perverting your system. Well, that's what we're going through, and then the governments are saying what the economy wanted to do in 2008 and early 2009, and started to do, just like the Great Depression, it started to do a flush out, a big mm-hmm. detox of debt. And the governments around the world just says, we are not going to allow this because we know the consequence. We know it'll be painful. And yes, it will be painful. Now, governments could have helped this, but Japan did the same thing we did and are doing. Two decades later, they've had two lost decades now. The economy's pretty much gone nowhere for two decades. Their government debt's gone from 60% of GDP to 230% in rising. Their consumer um, and, and financial sector debt is about the same as it was coming into the crisis, and only their corporate debt has deleveraged by about 30%. They basically didn't deleverage the private debt, and they let government debt go up to make up for the hold in the economy, just like we're doing now, keep running deficits, keep doing quantitative easing to make the economy seem better than it is, even though it's really going nowhere. And at the end of it, all you have is higher debt, and, and eventually you're going to have to deleverage this debt because if interest rates ever go up in Japan, which they will down the road, uh, they're going to be bankrupt because their government well, debt's too high. They yeah. only survive because they're paying 1% or less interest. That's not going to last. Well, let's going back to the gold argument, let's go back to that point of sovereign bankruptcy because really what's happening here is, is uh, and let me summarize and see if, I, first of all, I, I understand what you're telling us, but let alone I, I want to draw it out to the next possible conclusion if we just let the government continue to go on its path dealing out the drugs, which is, we have a crash in the private sector debt. If we let that wash, literally, uh, we're falling back on maybe the FDIC keeps uh, depositors whole, but anybody else who is holding on to that debt, anybody else associated with, they're going to eat it. It's going to hurt. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a near depression because assets will just completely bust and we'll be broke again. But heck, we won't have debt over our head and we'll begin to build again as opposed to trying to hold up debt, not let it break, and stave off long, longer run of just no economy. Review what you said. If we did eliminate $20 trillion in private debt, principal and interest, that's probably almost $1.5 trillion a year. 
great increase in cash flow, less in, in mortgage and debt payments to the private sector. That is a huge relief. That's a stimulus plan that pays off for decades into the future, not just a temporary fix. Sure. Yes, it would be painful to get to there. No pain, no gain. But but your only alternative is to keep taking more of the drug like Japan. And, 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 and still, Japan is yet to have their major debt crisis, but, and, and it's going to really be bad when they finally hit it. But, Harry, at the end of that scenario of taking the drug, the patient dies, and I know you agree, but what, what I'm saying is is that if governments continue to absorb and sell debt, you know, they take their credit card out to buy the bad debt of the, of the public sector, and, and they do go hell-bent for leather, and it just keeps going and going and going, then the bigger worry becomes... You know, when does Japan go bankrupt as a country? When do other countries and when does the United States go bankrupt as a country? Because we're talking about, I believe I saw a number here where if uh, interest rates were to go up 2%, 45% of all tax revenues would simply be put onto paying the interest rate that the United States have on its has on its debt. So at some point... It, it would be twice that bad in Japan. They would literally, all all of their revenue would almost be going to pay interest if, if interest rates just went up two, you know, two percentage points. Yeah. Right. So the... And this is going to happen sooner or later. This is... We're in the lowest... We're in a deflationary environment. The lowest interest rates we'll see in our lifetime. You've got to go all the way back to the 30s to see long-term treasuries in this range. Interest rates are only going to go up in the future, so any country, Japan, U.S., that does not clear its private debts and does not somehow restructure its government's debt coming, you know, decades from now is going to be bankrupt. In other words, we are going to have to deal with this, and governments around the world may have to have some kind of concerted default. I mean, for sure, Japan's going to default at some point. It may be yeah. three years from now. It may be ten years. Japan has to default. They, they're, so, they're, they're worse than Greece. But isn't a readjustment of the currency uh, key to to a, a, a country's bankruptcy? And there, there we go into the the gold argument. If if currency gets devalued, no, no, no. This, this is where the gold people miss it. Okay, this is the crystal point. Currencies are relative to each other. What the gold people are saying is, all currencies are going to go down and be near worthless. Currencies are relative to each other. Europe's currency they're printing money we're printing money china's doing it in their own way and on and on this is happening around the world the bank of england you know so as long as they all do it together the currencies don't currencies are a way to trade with with each other within uh, and if you don't get inflation in prices to erode your purchasing power then your purchasing power doesn't go down in fact if you get deflation the same dollar in the U.S. or the same euro in Europe actually buys more. I mean, home prices have come down 33% on average in the United States and will eventually go down 50 60%. That means the cost of living went down. Whatever salary you're making, whatever dollars you got under your mattress or in a bank somewhere is going to buy more and more house. So that's, that's the difference. Currencies go down together. I think what you'd have to do is that you're going to have southern European countries. They're going. To, Greece has already had some of their government debt written off, and there's going to be more. Spain's going to have to go through that. You know, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, maybe, it, and Japan at some point. At some point, even the major governments, the U.S. and Germany and stuff, we can't let them write down their debts, and we still be carrying some huge debt load. So there just may have to be some international 
restructuring of government debt. Now, that's going to come later. Private debt gets written off very quickly if you get in a crisis, as we saw in 2008. And in 19, from 1930 to 1933, total private and government debt ratios went from about 190% to 50% in three years. In other words, we wiped out 70% of the debt in the United States. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing. That's one of the reasons we came out of the Great Depression into World War II so strong. We, we, we shed a huge debt burden. Now, that means people who held bonds, uh, you know, get hurt. Investors get hurt. But what's the biggest complaint today? The average family's gotten no benefit out of this boom, and the top 1% that holds 50% of the financial assets has been big winners. Well, these people lose a lot of their gains in the bubble. It's investors that are going to lose the most. And the top 1% of households, the average household has already taken most of the beating on their house, and they don't have that much money in, in you know, uh, 401K plants and stuff. It's a much smaller percentage of where they're at. So, so the rich people actually take the burden of this. So private debt deleverages first. Some countries go bankrupt. And then at some point I'd say there's got to be some, you know, you know, the major countries of the world get together and say, you know what? We, we, we've, got to re, we've got to basically restructure the debt, uh, got the sovereign debt to investors around the world, and they're just going to have to take a hit. And boom, you do that. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, instead of the government debt being $20 trillion, now it's $12 trillion. That's- Sounds very sane. You think they can really get together and cooperate in that way? I think, oh, no, only after a crisis. Our, our view is, is 100% clear that without a crisis, we're going to see more of what we see. Stimulus, and then the stimulus wears off about a year later. QE2 is wearing off now in the U.S. Um, it's wearing off even faster in Europe. Stimulus, economy goes up, then it goes down, more stimulus, more quantitative easing. Governments will do the same old thing until some crisis hits, you know, like a run on Spanish banks or, or banks in the U.S. are just forced to start dumping the $4 million in foreclosure. A private sector, a private sector bus deflationary crisis is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. In other words, the government keeps stimulating, but, but by stimulating, they keep... What the government's really doing, in essence, is they're keeping the bubble going. We had the greatest bubble boom in history, you know, from about 1995 mm-hmm. into 2007-2008. The government's saying we can't let this bubble burst because it'll kill the banking system, and if the banking system dies, the economy will die. And, and that's a misconception. If the banking system breaks down, the strong banks will take over all the assets of the weak banks, like they did in the 1930s, and the whole system will come out stronger. And a lot of banks will go under, and a lot of bondholders will lose money. But it will make the economy stronger because we'll eliminate so much debt. So it's a misconception that this will kill the economy. It's more like what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's the logic of the winter season. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's, that's just going to continue until the government loses control. You could see, I mean, you, we've already seen about a 35% run on Greece banks, and, 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 and that would have been worse if, if the ECB and Europe didn't step in and give Greece money to offset those. those. And you're just saying that the trick won't work forever, and that deflationary pressure is going to arrive one day bigger and louder than it would have originally, and the private sector is going to bust. And and let's just, for our listeners... And then governments will bust. Their, Their deficits will mushroom, and then governments will have to say, okay, we need a new plan. And guess what the new plan is? We're going to have to restructure entitlements. We're going to have to restructure government spending. We may have to even 
have a concerted global default on sovereign bonds because we just simply borrowed too much money. I mean, the private sector does it on, on its own. It'll do it by itself. And, and it really sounds like we're on the same track leading up to, uh, we're on the same track leading up to as what most of the gold bugs are saying. But what you're saying is the eventual outcome is not that uh, it's all solved by all the currencies changing out and, and, and suddenly gold gold is holding its own uh, against the the change out in currencies, you're saying that there's going to be some other ultimate end of this, which is not going to make gold uh, at seven thousand dollars an ounce, as James Rickard says. Yeah, and, and this is history says this crystal clear, and maybe this is different. History says there's only one thing you get after a major debt bubble, whether the debt is more in government or private, and, and there's always more private debt than government debt, almost, and, and especially. Mm-hmm today's modern economy. For the first time in history, everyday households were able to borrow six, seven, eight, nine, ten times their income against a house. That didn't happen in the Roaring Twenties or any time in history. So, you know, now it's the, the, the private debt is more massive, but every time there's a major debt bubble and it finally winds down, you get deflation in prices. So the solution here, ultimately, even though governments are resisting it, and trying to do something else is deflation of prices, deleveraging of private debt and then deleveraging of government debt and entitlements. And that takes money out of the system, brings prices and asset prices down, and guess what? Gold goes down with them. So you're saying it's possible to deleverage government debt without defaulting on its currency and therefore some other uh, uh, hard asset is going to replace the currency. Right, and again, currencies, we're all in the same boat. Uh, the typical European country has about 400% GDP, four times their GDP in private and public debt, just like the U.S. You know, U.K. and Japan are higher, and Ireland, you know, Germany's a little lower, you know, and Spain and Portugal. Or, I mean, the U.S., frankly, looks just like Spain and Portugal. I don't know why anybody's got a flight to quality to this country's bond. <laughs> we have a similar government deficit, percentage of GDP, similar total debt. So the whole world is in this same boat, and the whole world's going to have to deleverage together, some a little sooner, some a little later. So all of our currencies get kind of devalued together, but, but it, it, you know, it, they still relate to each other, uh, and, and you'll still trade. And, and, and the truth is, like, for example, for the U.S. dollar, the more we take a lot of the dollars we created in debt, this $42 trillion, out of the system, Less dollars means they're worth more. Dollars mm-hmm. are now more scarce if you destroy debt. So, again, people need to understand governments don't largely print money. They're printing money, quantitative easing, in an emergency to keep the banking system from going down. Private financial systems print almost all the money in the economy because they basically can create ten times their deposits in loan, ultimately. Yeah. You know, the fractional reserve system, that's where the money's created. And now we added the shadow banking system on top of that for the first time in history. Define the shadow banking system for a minute. Well, you know, we used to banks, that the old system was banks taking a deposit from a business or consumer. Yeah. They have to keep 10% of that roughly most of the time, law, you know, reserves, for loan losses, which in normal times is plenty, and they eventually lend out the other ninety percent. In other words, they can, you know, they can make a loan of, of let's say, they get a thousand dollars deposit. They can keep ten percent reserves. They loan out nine hundred. Well, that nine hundred goes to a consumer business, who then redeposits it. Now they can lend ninety percent of that. So eventually, that's the tr- that's the traditional fractional reserve system. Yeah. 
So you lend out a lot more than you reserve, but at least it's against something. You have deposits. Well, the new shadow banking system said, oh, that's so, oh, that's so, you know, 1900s. You know, you know the government will have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac raise money through bonds to buy these mortgages so the banks don't have to hold them against the reserves so that you can lend even more money. Oh, okay. I'll just give you the example. Here's the telltale sign to, to make it very practical for people. At the beginning of the housing bubble, at the beginning of 2000, the average household could borrow 3.3 uh, times their pre-tax income for a mortgage. At the top of the bubble in early 2006, we're talking less than six years later, okay, they could borrow 9.8 times, almost a three times increase in borrowing against the same incomes, and that's what fueled the bubble in housing. When people can borrow that much at such low interest rates, the payments go down, they get a bigger house they can afford, it pushes demand for housing up. That's what created the housing bubble. Why did the government let that happen? You know? Okay. The shadow banking system allowed banks to just lend unlimited money, the assumption in the banks, by the banks, after decades of experience, real estate never goes down. If it does, not for long. So we got no risk in real estate. So we don't care if we lend a customer more than they, they can pay. And the customer doesn't care because everybody assumes five years from now the house is going to be worth more and the bank's got more collateral and the customer's got more assets and everybody's happy. So we, and we kept saying, we, we were one of the few people in late 2005 said, I'm sorry, just like Japan, this is a real estate bubble and it's going to burst. Well, nobody thought real estate could ever burst. When real estate started bursting, that's how we got our subprime crisis. Now it's bursting around the world in different countries. And real estate really is what kills this thing. Governments can't keep stimulating if real estate keeps getting weaker. It's going to get weaker in Spain. They had a bubble bigger than us and lasted longer. U.S. with, with the lowest mortgage rates in history. Real estate has barely bounced. Everybody's talking about a housing recovery. This housing recovery is very, very modest after three years of basically falling, and it's only barely rising in prices and sales and new home sales with the lowest mortgage rates in history and the biggest stimulus plan ever at any other time in history. If we'd had this sort of stimulus and this low mortgage rates, home, home sales would be roaring. They're not because people already bought too much housing. People already got too much in debt. Even if you give them the house for free with zero interest rates, most people don't want it. So real estate is really the, the if it keeps weakening around the world, and it will off and on, it, there's a point where banks start to realize home prices are never coming back to where they were and they, they, sh they can't afford to keep holding these foreclosures back. They've been purposefully holding foreclosures back. Four million, approximately. Yeah. Spain. If Spain has a bank run like Greece did because something blows up there and people say, oh my God, you know, or, or Greece leaves the euro, then people say Spain's going to be next. Spain has a bank run. They're four times as big as Greece. And, and, and Europe's had to spend a bunch of money just to stop the bank runs in Greece. Imagine, you know, there's something that's going to happen, I think, in the next year, maybe in the next few months. It's going to just burst this bubble because by continuing to keep the bubble going and, and pumping up the system even more, more and more steroids, more and more debt, you're blowing up the balloon and making it tighter. So, it, so, so all it takes is some crisis to burst that balloon 
and then things melt down faster than the government can react. And that's what happened with the subprime crisis. It seemed to come out of nowhere. It mushroomed overnight, and the government was behind the game. And, and we already had a meltdown in the financial system. We already had stocks down 50, 60, 70 percent around the world before there was enough stimulus to then bring things back. So this time they've made the bubble worse. So I think, you know, whenever we have this next crisis, it's going to be somewhere between late this year and late 2014. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. So let's talk about that for just a minute. So when this point comes that the, the government can't keep inflating the bubble and somewhere all of the money printing can't overcome the deflationary natural natural. Uh, want, want desire. Yeah, it's going to be in force. It's going to deleverage the private sector and finally let this bad stuff wash out. What will be that scenario for the guy working the line at the big company with the 401k, the, the small business owner who's trying to put something in a simplified employee pension and they're sitting in the market? Tell me, what what does this crisis mean? Is it 2008 all over again? Does it have a different color? You know, it's like 2008, only it's longer and deeper, because basically this deleveraging started, and the government just basically put the brakes on it. They were a little late, but they put the brakes on it and eventually stopped it. And, and, you know, the stocks turned around in March of 2009. The economy turned around more like mid-2009 on a lag, which is typical. And they stopped it, you know, and, and it took trillions and trillions of dollars. I just calculated for a thing I'm doing in my newsletter for Europe, Europe has had five trillion dollars in QE and bailout. Five trillion dollars. I mean, that's just—it's a third of the entire GDP of the eurozone, just to keep their economy at a slight recession. Now imagine without that five trillion, how deep a depression they would have been in. Imagine without the three trillion in the U.S. we put in, and all the loan guarantees and everything the government's done, and the Fed saying, no matter what, we'll be there. But you know. Without this, we would have already been in a Great Depression, and it would have been a greater depression than the 1930s because our debt ratios are, are two to three times in total what they were in 1929 before that crisis set in. So that's what we're sitting on. We're, we're sitting on right. a volcano that wants to blow. It needs to blow. And, and what does that mean to the individual? What does that mean to the guy who's just watching all this happen? What does he need to be doing to pr- protect himself and to prepare for what's coming and, and potentially to, to even maybe prosper out of this. Yeah, cash and cash flow are king. If you got real estate you can't sell, rent it out. If you can sell real estate now, sell it now. Uh, if you can sell your home and rent a home for the next few years, do that, because that's going to create cash and cash flow. If you can cut your living expenses, pay off your high-interest credit card, do it now. If you got a 401k, an investment plan, and you got risk on assets, commodities, gold, silver, stocks, all this sort of stuff, get more in cash, get defensive, because whoever has cash, when all these things collapse, because our scenario is when this crisis hits, it's just like late 2008, only worse, everything goes down. Real estate, foreign stocks, emerging market stocks, U.S. stocks, commodities, everything. Everything goes down, so there's no way to diversify, like in most periods, and protect yourself very much. You've just got to be out of the way. You've got to say, I tell people, look, in our best scenario, stocks, the S&P could just, at the best scenario in the next year, go up to 1,600. Well, you know what that is? That's a 14, 15% gain from here. Mm-hmm. You know what our worst scenario is it goes down to 400. That's a 70% drop. 
that's not a good, that's, it's not mm-hmm. worth hanging out for that last 5 or 10% or so in the markets. If at any time, if the right crisis hits or the wrong, right trigger hits, we go into another meltdown that's even worse than late 2008. So everything goes down. And, again, gold is the biggest question mark because gold is a crisis metal, and, and it may go up at times. There may even be a scenario when it goes up. But I tell people, look, if you want to bet, if you want to make money, not only just get out and get out of the way, if you want to make money in a crash like this, you should be short stocks. Not, in, not, not with leverage, just short the S&P 500 or something like that. Short stocks because whether we have deflation, as I predict, or hyperinflation or inflation, as some of the gold bugs and, 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 and some very good forecasters predict, stocks go down either way. Bonds react differently in inflation or deflation. I think gold and silver react differently in inflation versus deflation, as commodities do. So, so stocks are the one thing. In either scenario, if we have a crisis, stocks go down. Stocks went down in the 1970s, and we had an inflationary crisis. Stocks went down even more in the 1930s with a deflationary crisis. But every other asset reacted different. So, so if you get in cash and just play it safe and know that no matter what happens, if we have this debt crisis, your dollar is going to buy more within your country, regardless of what happens with currencies at different times, because the cost of living is going to go down. Debt's going to deleverage. Real estate's going to come down more. Whatever dollars you have is going to buy a better house. It's hard for most people to see that. There's, we've, we've lived over a lifetime, we've lived with so much inflation that when we tell people prices might go down, they just roll their eyes. But, but the price of housing has already gone down. That's right. And people told me all throughout the 1990s, I mean, in the 2000s, in this housing bubble, and I warned so many people, you can't believe it, and everybody said the same thing. Real estate can never go down. It's gone up all of our life. It's, they're not making any more of it. And I said, shut the frick up and call somebody in Japan. Don't argue with me. Call anybody. You know, call a random phone number in Japan and ask them if real estate can go down. And you know how long real estate's gone down in Japan? 21 years. Yeah. 60% residential, 80% commercial. I think people... One year. I think it's hard for... Real estate can't go down. And don't tell me commodities can't go down. Don't tell me gold can't go down. Right. Gold crashed from 1980 to 86 dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. And all we did was went from inflation to low, high inflation to lower inflation. We didn't even go into deflation, and gold crashed. Right. And silver went from... Ten, $50 to $5 in two years. So anybody feels like, oh, God, I'm safe because I'm in silver, it's the most volatile single commodity on the earth. So, Harry... I'm just saying it's a question mark. Yeah. There might be a scenario where gold and silver could go up at times. I'm like, it's too big a question mark. 2008 proves that everything can go down at the same time. So my thing is, and the U.S. dollar went up, my thing is be in the U.S. dollar index, be in short-term safe securities, and, and that will protect you against deflation, if that's the outcome. And sooner or later, we've got to have deflation. Now, history says debt bubbles are only followed by deflation in prices. Is it, is it likely that um, after this period, if we were to get the deflation and get the good result of it, then is there a natural tendency once that washes to start to pick back up on, uh, not necessarily hyperinflationary, but inflationary trends once the washout really happens? Is that kind of sitting there on the other side of this? Yeah, the cycle's very, it's, it's what we call four seasons. You look back since the 1930s, you'll see this. You get a deflationary crash after a bubble like the Roaring Twenties. So you get deflation in the winter season. Let's call that 1929 to 42, roughly. 
Mm-hmm. Then with World War II and the boom that followed, we call that the spring season, you didn't get hyperinflation, you got mild inflation, because you're coming out of deflationary period. Mm-hmm. And it's just like Japan, with, with the greatest money printing in history, all they could do is keep inflation at zero to stop deflation. They couldn't even create inflation with, with, with unbelievably expansive monetary policy. Well, the spring boom brings up demand. Commodity prices come back, interest rates go up, and that's why we say a country that does not deal with their government and private debt and get it back down to normal levels, when we come into spring, governments will be paying 4, 5, 6% interest long-term bonds, businesses will be paying 5, 6, 7, and somebody who has too much debt, including consumers with mortgages, will be bankrupt. So you've got to deal with it. Spring will bring modestly higher inflation. Then you get into summer, which was like the late 60s, say the mid-60s and the early 80s. You get an inflationary crisis. That's when you see high inflation, and that is when gold, silver, and commodities do the best. That will follow the next spring boom, and then the fall season comes when that inflation is worn off by massive new technologies and productivity, and then you get the bubble boom, and the bubble creates bubbles, and then you get a bubble burst, and you get back to deflation. So it's deflation. Mild inflation, spring, high inflation, summer, low inflation again, falling inflation in fall, and then deflation again in winter. So after this decade, we will see inflation rise, and it will be driven more by emerging countries uh, and all their young people and their growth. And, and, but it, we will not see hyperinflation. So if we could, if we could devise a strategy uh, to fit that, to fit that pattern, tell me if this is something of what it would be, which is on the immediate basis, don't lose anything. Don't lose anything. And preserve what you made, preserve what you made in the bubble in real estate, stocks, commodities, gold, anything. You made huge gains if you've been invested in the last couple of decades. Turn those into cash, freeze those, preserve them. And keep a cash flow out of them if possible. Yeah, and and, eek, and anything that you do own, like real estate, you, you should only own real estate if you can rent it out at positive cash flow. And then at some point, if we could take that cash flow and inflate it, should this all wash over and we go back to the spring, then that would be, would that be somewhat ideally how to follow the pattern of this? Yeah, in fact, even before spring hits, in the Great Depression, although the winter season lasted on and off with high unemployment and off and on deflation from 1929 to 42. Stocks bottomed in July 1932. Real estate bottomed in March of 1933. You could have started buying deleveraged, deflated assets then and and started making money. So the key thing, be in cash until the next bubble burst. And I think that's going to happen between 2012 and late 2014 or so. You just got to be safe for a couple of years here. And if we're right and we see these bubbles burst in stocks and real estate again and even commodities and gold and silver possibly, now you can go in and buy these assets at 10, 20, 30, 40 cents on the dollar. And now you've got the potential to make long-term gains again, especially as we move towards the spring season and the next longer-term boom. And again, you're buying stuff cheap. It'll be the greatest sale on financial assets in your lifetime. You can only take advantage of it if you have cash because nobody's going to lend you money to buy these things. And if you're holding your assets and your 401K plans and the real estate you're sitting in goes down, you've got no buying power and then you've already lost 
a ton of money. Yeah. Financial advisors always talk diversification and all that sort of stuff, asset allocation. That is true. Even in the 1970s, that would have protected you a good bit. In the deflationary crisis, in the, in the winter season, when, when the big bubbles burst, like late 2008, and then we think the next one coming, everything goes down. So you have to be in safe, cash-like investments to survive. All right. Parting, parting question here, Harry. I'm going to let you go. Um, just point blunt. Is the United States going to default on its debt? You know, well, well, number one, there's not a question in my mind in the next several years, we're going to have to radically restructure our entitlements. Medicare, Medicaid is the biggest thing, along with Social Security. We're acting like, you know, we still die at age 65 or something when these programs were created. If we adjusted for life expectancy, we would be retiring at age 75 today and starting Social Security benefits and Medicare and Medicaid and stuff, and we'd have to ration what people get or not. You can't just have endless health care. So we're going to have to restructure entitlements massively. We can't even afford what we had before Obamacare in the coming decades. We can't even remotely afford that. It's going to take a crisis. And I think in some way, because it is true, even if we're right in private debt, eventually deleverages by up to $20 trillion in the U.S., in a crisis, government deficits are only going to rise and government debt's only going to go up, especially until you start restructuring health care and stuff like that. So at some point, yes, I think it would be after. The United States can't default first, or Germany or countries like that. Southern Europe can default. Maybe Japan defaults. I said, oh, at some point, the stronger governments will say, look, it's not fair for the weaker governments to default, and we'd be holding this bag of higher debt. We have to have a structured default. Now, you know, that may come in 2016 or 2020. That's not going to happen in the next few years. The biggest thing to happen in the next few years is the weakest countries default, like Southern Europe and possibly Japan, and the private debt accelerates in deleveraging here in Europe and the bubble and Chinese real estate burst, which is massive. So that, that's what we're looking at. And I, I'd say the final thought here, Bruce, I tell people, forget all I've said about deflation versus inflation all that. That's pretty hard for people to stomach, although we're clear about that, crystal clear looking at history. The other thing to bring up a red flag for any investor that's saying, well, I've got to go out and buy gold. Well, I've got to go out and buy government bonds. It's the only thing safe now. When everybody, when all investors go in one direction, that's a bubble. We've already bubbled into tech stocks, and we bubbled into real estate, and we bubbled into emerging markets. Now we bubbled into commodities. Gold and silk, gold and, and, and long-term treasury bonds, like in Germany, the U.K., and the United States in particular, are the final bubble. Our treasury bonds have gone from 4% a few years ago down to 1.4% yields. We, we predict they could go down to 1.2% by some long-term trend lines. And then yields could go back to 4%. They went from 2% to 4% in six months from late 2008 into mid-2009. So people are piling into bonds saying, well, it's the only safe place to go, even though I'm getting negative yield. People are piling into gold saying, well, it's the only thing that has value. You've got to realize that this is on TV every day on commercials. You can make money in gold. Gold's the only thing that won't go down. When everybody's doing stuff and when everybody you talk to is buying gold, that's already a big warning sign. I don't want to pile into anything that everybody's piling into. They said tech stocks would never go down because it was a new productivity plateau. They said the next decade, real estate can never go down. They're never making more of the stuff. It went down. When every potty piles into something, it has to go down just because it bubbles up and gets overvalued. So that's another thing to worry about. You know, it's fine to have gold and silver as a hedge up to a point, but to be betting your life 
and your financial well-being on one asset that's already proven to fail in late 2008, gold and silver, that is a huge risk. And remember, silver is the most volatile. If I want to bet on precious metals, I'd rather bet on gold and silver. Silver's already gone from $50 down to 26 recently, in half. You know, when gold just went down maybe 20% or something. Silver has gone time and time again down 90%. Gold has gone down 60 70%. These things can go down just like real estate. So if you've got a logic that gold can't go down, you should question that logic. And, and at least if you're going to bet on gold and silver, make it a piece of your portfolio. Don't make it like, oh, I'm going to have 70% of my money in gold. Right. Okay, Harry. Hey, thanks so much for your time. And um, uh, appreciate uh, appreciate you taking the time on the phone. And um, I'll, I'll personally be catching up with you in November at least on Tampa. We'll see you then. Okay, thanks a lot, man. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.